you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll begin there. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning and to worship together. And hopefully this study of the hour will be beneficial to you as we look to God's Word for guidance. Not questioning His judgments, as we just sing about, but going with Him anywhere and trusting in Him and always being faithful to Him. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1, the Scripture says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. Chapter 20, he would say much of the same thing, beginning in verse 16. Deuteronomy 20 and verse 16, it tells us, Of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. The Bible clearly demonstrates in God's plan, his scheme of redemption that included the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come that that nation God chose to bring them out of Egypt would inhabit a promised land that was already inhabited by other people. And to procure that land through God's grace, they would utterly destroy them. And when it says utterly destroy them, just like we read in Deuteronomy 20 and in verse 18, he means utterly destroy them. You shall let nothing that breathes, remain alive. I'm sure that you've experienced that turning to this kind of context is a favorite thing for the skeptic of God to do, to argue that a God who proclaims himself to be a God of love and mercy and goodness and tenderness, of patience, if that God is truly what he says to be, how in the world can we harmonize that with him destroying utterly all the living in the land of Canaan? Man, woman, child, and beast, how can we reconcile that? And their point would be that he is not a true God, that he does not exist, that the God of the Old Testament is cruel and we should despise him rather than serve him and praise him. If Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, Richard Dawkins is the champion 
of the skeptics, of the atheists. I'm sure you've heard his name. He's written many books. He's held debates. He has been on podcasts and shows and has spoken about his utter disdain for the God that we serve, the God of the Bible. He is famously quoted in his book, The God Delusion, as saying this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And you don't have to know those words to know they're bad. And you see this throughout the arguments that skeptics give. They argue from great emotion. They use these kinds of intimidating words that are extremely negative that we would not want to be associated in the slightest degree with. And they label God with them to really shake us, to cause us to question what we do read about God and his dealings with the nations like the Canaanites in the Old Testament. Is this a fair treatment of God's actions that we read about? When God said, you shall utterly destroy them, man, woman, child, beast, you, you shall utterly wipe out everything that has breath in its lungs. Does that make God this monster that Richard Dawkins suggests he is? Well, I would suggest to you, absolutely not. It actually speaks to God's wonderful character, and we'll see that. First Peter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Peter says by inspiration that we are to be ready to give a defense to those who ask for an answer for the hope that lies within us. We need to be ready to defend God against this indictment of being such a monster. And so this is really the way the argument goes. If God is, you name it, his characteristics that are supposed to be good, then why would he slaughter the Canaanites? Why would he destroy not just those who were notably wicked, but even the children? And we'll get to that. If God is love, why would he do that? And certainly God is love. First John 4 and verse 8 tells us very clearly that it is not that we love God first, but that he loved us. And the fact of his love is ingrained within his very nature. God is love. You want to describe God, that is the word to use. It's very comprehensive in its nature. Everything God does is love. And I would suggest to you even these kinds of judgments that we read about in the Old Testament and in the New and his judgment at the end of time will be another expression of his love. If God is good, why would he slaughter the Canaanites? Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 when he came to him and asked him, what, what thing should I do to inherit eternal life? He called him good teacher. You remember what Jesus responded to him with? Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. He's not denying his deity. He's not denying that he's God in the flesh, that he's God's son. What he's saying is that you haven't reached that conclusion yet. You just think I'm a teacher, but you call me good. Don't you know that the very essence of goodness is intertwined and wrapped in 
the character and nature of God. He is good. You wonder what good is? And Micah 6, he says, he has shown you what is good. Ultimately, God is good and what comes forth from him is good. So what about this destruction of the Canaanites? How is that good? How does that reflect God's goodness? Psalm 145 in verse 8 says this about our great God. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. So if he is full of compassion, if he's tender, if he's merciful, why would he slaughter the Canaanites? Why would he slaughter those children? And then if God is just, why would he do these things? Psalm 89 verse 14 tells us righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. How is that a just thing to destroy the Canaanites? We've just come off the study of the imprecatory songs and James did an excellent job of that. And so I thought it appropriate because that's a very troubling question that we're confronted with to have a study where those who aren't in that class could participate and think about it. And to look specifically at probably the most recognized flaw in the Bible from skeptics, supposed flaw, that God who claims to be full of love and goodness and full of compassion and tender mercies, a just God would march his people into a land that wasn't theirs to begin with and slaughter everyone. What are you going to tell the skeptic that brings that to your attention? What will be your answer to them? Let me suggest to you that it is not our job to explain away God's deeds in a spirit of confused defeat, but maintain faith in his immaculate and perfect and eternal nature to, to search for if we don't immediately recognize it and we're struggling to answer that to search for and dig for with prayerful consideration and meditation. What is the harmony between God's love, his goodness, his compassion, his tender mercy, his justice, his holiness, and these kinds of passages where he wiped out entire nations and civilizations. Search for it, dig for it. I might have suggest to you we'll find that all that God does, including these very impressive feats of destruction, point to his wonderful attributes as the God of the universe. Remember in Exodus 34, when Moses went to the mount, as he had already interceded for the people after they committed idolatry, and God was saying he's not going to go with them into the land because of what they did. They're going to have to go with the angel. And that, of course, was discouraging to them. And Moses wants to intercede again, and he wants to have God's presence in his fellowship. So he says, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see me and live as anyone else has. So I'll hide you and you'll see my back, but I will proclaim my name to you. And this is what he proclaims in Exodus 34. And verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. I would suggest to you that in the accounts of the destruction of the Canaanites, we see God's name being glorified and proclaimed. Not just His justice, but His mercy, His compassion, His goodness, His holiness, all His wonderful attributes. But I want us to notice something there in verse 7. He says not just that He'll forgive and that He's merciful and gracious, but He by no means clears the guilty. And so we understand the conditional aspect of God's forgiveness. And that plays into this as well. He doesn't just clear those who don't seek clearing. He doesn't blot out the sins of those who do not confess and repent of those sins. And He visits iniquity with punishment. He visits with vengeance. And certainly that is a good part of His nature as well, His holy nature. Let me warn you and encourage you about playing into their actions and their plans to cause doubt of your faith in the God of the Bible by saying that, well, that was God of the Old Testament. You see, in the New Testament, we read about mercy, we read about grace, we read about God's love and Jesus and how wonderful He is in His ministry, but that was the God of the Old Testament. It's different in the New Testament. That's not the answer. That's not consistent with Scripture. We read of God's grace and His love and His mercy. We just did in God's character throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. It is fully manifested in Jesus and in His will, but it's God's nature to be merciful and forgiving and gracious and compassionate. And so that's not the answer that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. God's character never has changed. So what is the answer? We've seen the character of God. What about those Canaanites? What about them? How dare God destroy them? Well, let's think for a minute. What about them? They were evil, evil people. In Hebrews 11 and verse 31, when Rahab the harlot from Jericho is included within the hall of faith, the scripture, the Numeric Standard Bible says, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. They were disobedient people. You say, well, God was the God of the Israelites, though, and he gave them the law. That's very true. But we must not forget that there was always a law from the Garden of Eden, that these people were amenable to the God that created them. These people were responsible for following and serving that God. Without law, there is no sin. Romans 5 says, until Moses, sin was in the world. And it tells us there, sin is not imputed without law. And the implication is there was law for the world before the law of Moses was revealed and codified and implemented. This is why Paul could say what he did about the Gentiles in Romans 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They were revealed the truth and they held it down. They wanted to live unrighteous lives. What may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They were disobedient. And when God destroyed them, they were without excuse. There was no excuse for it. They deserved every bit of what God gave them. They were evil, evil, evil people. And that is stressed time and time again in the Old Testament, especially in context of warning to the children of Israel. I want us to notice a passage in Leviticus, the 18th chapter. Leviticus chapter 18, beginning in verse 24, rather verse, uh, yes, Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 24. He says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. That's the Canaanites. This is how they're living. This is how they're defiled. They're evil. They're disobedient. He says, The land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. I want us to pause there. He's, he's giving a figure, but what he's saying is that they're so vile... They're so disgusting, they're so immoral, they're so detestable, they're so sinful that what's actually happening is that the land is vomiting them out. Matthew 5 says that the children of God are the salt of the earth. And while salt preserves, it also seasons. And Christians make the world a little more palatable to God. He can look down on His people on the earth though they're surrounded by evil, with favor and delight, but not with the Canaanites. The land was sick with their immorality and ready to vomit them out. And that's what happened. Notice verse 26. It says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations of the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. What are those abominations? Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. They were adulterers. They did not hold to the sanctity of marriage. They defiled the very institution of God that he gave from the beginning. Verse 21, you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. They committed the heinous act of child sacrifice. In Deuteronomy 12 and verse 31, it tells us you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Jeremiah spoke about the judgment against Jerusalem and Judah and said because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place because they have burned incense in it to the other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. That's what they were doing. Wayne Jackson noted in an article on the Old Testament events and the goodness of God that in the Canaanite religion, 
El was the chief god and Baal was his son, and these were the gods they served. He noted that there were funerary jars that had been found with the bodies of young children distorted by suffocation as they struggled for life after having been buried alive as a sacrifice to Canaanite gods. Such young children have been found in the foundation pillars of Canaanite houses, and sometimes religious ceremonies were associated with their sacrifice. That's detestable. That wouldn't stand in our society. I know it's ironic that abortion does. But that kind of activity associated with religion, there's no way that people would stand for that. Verse 22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And while I know we live in a society where that's common and accepted, that is an abomination completely contrary to created nature. Verse 23, it's equated in context nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand with an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. That's the kind of people that were in that land. Wayne Jackson also goes on to indicate that El, that is the father of Baal, the gods they worship, is said to have seduced two women and horrible sexual perversions are associated with his name. He married three of his own sisters, who also were married to Baal. He is represented as practicing vile sex acts and influencing others to do likewise. That's the people that God destroyed. So he says in verse 30, Therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. So when we view the actions of God on the Canaanites within the context of their vile and vulgar way of living, not only does it become understandable what God does, but we can appreciate what God did. Remember what Habakkuk said in chapter 1 and verse 13 when he could not comprehend how God would use the wicked Babylonians to punish the wicked Israelites? He says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. I'm thankful that we have a God that would look at such deeds with such disgust that he would do something about it. It does not speak against his goodness or his holiness or his love. It exalts it. And so God's judgment against the Canaanites was righteous because they were unrighteous. I want us to think about something. This is the way the skeptic will speak about God. He is petulant. He's like a child throwing a temper tantrum. He is capricious. He flies off the handle. He has no control of his anger. He is a bully, is what Richard Dawkins called him. But this is what the Bible says about God. In Psalm 145 and in verse 8, the psalmist writes, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Now, if the skeptic is being consistent, what they will say is that I'm not going to deny that that's what God's people thought of him. I'm not going to deny that that's what God claimed for himself in his own nature, that he's slow to anger but that just does not seem what I see in the Old Testament. 
And so if, if they're going to be consistent, why don't you let God speak for himself? Why don't you investigate the entirety of Scripture? And brethren, that's what we need to challenge them with. If you're going to argue against the God of the Bible based on some things that he's done in the Bible, why not look at the whole picture? There's got to be consistency. He says he's slow to anger, and they doubt that. In fact, they charge him with the opposite. There's plenty of accounts that show he's slow to anger, that he's long-suffering, that he's patient. Remember in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God married with the daughters of men, that is those who were following God and faithful to God, and those who were just living in the flesh for the pleasures of this life, living as mere men, and they intermingled, and the sin became very great on the earth. It tells us in Genesis 6 and verse 3, God said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. He's not saying that now man can only live to be 120 years because we see people living longer than that after the flood. He's saying from this point on, I'm giving them 120 years until I wipe them out. And what did he do for 120 years? It tells us that Noah who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, who was told to build an ark, that he was a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. What was he preaching? He was warning them, rebuking them for their sin, warning them of the judgment to come, giving them opportunity for 120 years. What about Sodom? You remember when God was to destroy Sodom and Lot was there. So Abraham interceded on Sodom's behalf and he said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous souls there? Would you spare it? He said, yes. Then he went down to 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, then 10. God was giving them a chance, wasn't he? And then you remember, well, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh to destroy it. No, to warn it of the destruction to come. I don't want to destroy them. Bring them to repentance. And Jonah didn't want to do that, but eventually God chastened him and he did. And when he preached to them, they repented of their deeds. So God relented of the harm that was coming their way. And even after that, Jonah was upset that God did not destroy him. And what did God do to him? He rebuked him. He said, you care more about this plant that withered than you do about the souls of people. That's the God who destroyed the Canaanites. Patient, giving them a chance. Remember in Jeremiah 18, in the context, God is warning Judah and he's telling them, if you don't change, you're going to be destroyed like all the other nations. You're going to be judged just like all the other nations. And he gave the image of the potter and the, the clay and how the, the potter changes the clay to fit what he's wanting. And so it makes the application in Jeremiah 18 and verse 7, the instant I speak concerning a nation, not just you, but all nations, and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I brought. Uh, I thought to bring upon it. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit from it. That's, that's very fair. If I'm going to judge you and destroy you, I'll give you a chance to change. If you don't change, I'm going to destroy you. If I bless you and you receive favor like with Israel, 
and then you turn to do evil, I will destroy you. You've got to be faithful. He says in Ezekiel 18 and in verse 23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? That's what he was expressing in Jeremiah 18. He does not want to destroy anyone. But he's holy. And if we don't meet his conditions, his terms, he will. And that's what he did with Canaan. It was no different for the inhabitants of Canaan. Remember, God gave Abraham this promise of this land. And to inhabit a land that is already inhabited, what do you have to do? You have to conquer it. You have to drive those people out. You have to destroy them. But in Genesis 15 and verse 13, he tells Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. He's talking about Egyptian captivity. And he says in verse 16 of Genesis 15, and this is key to our study, And the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He could have destroyed them then. The reason he didn't is because of his grace and mercy, his long-suffering nature. They're not yet complete. It's only when they are ripe for destruction that you will go and drive them out. He waited 400 plus years. He's long-suffering. And so his judgment is certainly just as we read in Deuteronomy 7 and in Deuteronomy 20, that they would be driven out, they would be destroyed, and he commanded his people to utterly destroy them, not leaving anything left, lest they be defiled, lest they be influenced in their evil. So someone asks, and I think it is a, a good question to ask. We should investigate. What about the innocent children? You say destroy the evil lest they lead you away into that same evil. What about the innocent children? Well, certainly they, they are innocent. In Joshua 6 and verse 21, it tells us they utterly destroyed at Jericho all that was in the city, both man and woman and young and old and ox and sheep and donkey. We remember what Saul was told to do with Amalek in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. Utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them both. Kill both man, woman, infant, and nursing child. What about them? They're innocent. Certainly they are. Ezekiel 18, 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. In Deuteronomy 1, 39, talking about the, that second generation of the Israelites, it says, Your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. They have no knowledge of good and evil. We're not denying that those children were innocent. But here's something that James did an excellent job of in his class, emphasizing. Even in that destruction, including of the children, there is the infinite knowledge of God, that is directly corresponding to his wonderful mercy. Remember in Numbers 14, after the children of Israel rebelled at Kadesh and God would cause them to wander in the wilderness 40 years, he says this, your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years. Those, those people, he said, that have no knowledge of good or evil and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. 
They lived and they were taken into the land, but they bore the brunt of your infidelity. The son does not bear the guilt of the father, but certainly the son has to put up with the consequences of his father's evil. Too many times. These children didn't. They were spared from that. Also, they were spared from the influence. They're not going to be children forever. They're going to grow up, and while they have free will, and they're ultimately going to be responsible for what they choose to do, certainly your environment will have a great influence on you. There are people who grow up in terrible, immoral, ungodly situations who certainly will bear the responsibility for all their decisions But there's a reason why the Bible stresses how important it is to have godly homes and parents because it actually does make a difference. They would grow up and certainly the majority of them would be influenced by that great evil. In Matthew 18 and verse 6, this is what Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. So he destroyed the one who would cause the offense and with it the ones who were offenseless without sin and they never saw an opportunity to do the evil that their parents taught them to do. And that's wonderful. Bruce Reeves in an article on why God allows suffering, said this, God is simply transitioning souls from the physical sphere to the spiritual. He's not annihilating these souls. He's transitioning them. And the Canaanite children would be ushered into paradise while those who were ungodly would enter torment. Here's something interesting as well. The same people who argue that God is evil for destroying the Canaanites are those who complain about God allowing evil to persist. But you can't have it both ways. Brethren, justice being upheld requires the unjust, evil doers and offenders of law to be punished. When we cry out for the oppressed and the oppressed cry out and we wonder how is God going to deliver them, the oppressor must be punished. We understand this in self-defense, don't we? The innocent must be protected, and that might require the guilty to be slain. And so it's illogical to say God's evil for destroying evildoers and then say God's evil for allowing evil to continue. Which is it? What do you want? And they need to know that. It was God's prerogative to destroy those nations. Remember what Job said in Job 1 and verse 21, the Lord takes... The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You ever heard someone speaking rightly so and at times about an individual who thinks they have so much power they can do what they want, take whoever's life they want, and they say he doesn't have a right to play God. What that implies is that God does have a right. He does have a right. This is what he meant to Daniel in Daniel uh, 5 and verse 21, or Belshazzar reminding him about the sins of his father, Nebuchadnezzar that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever He wishes. And in all those doings, His ways are just. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice, righteousness and upright is He in all of His doings. Here's, here's the kicker. Here's the most, and very quickly, here's the most important part of this, the heart of the matter. 
Why do they have such a problem with that? It's not because they've logically followed the evidence and they've logically reasoned that God is actually contradictory, that he is maniacal, that he is evil, that he is detestable. Here's their problem with God destroying the Canaanites and any other thing they have a problem with with God. His judgment against the Canaanites foreshadows the eternal judgment of all. They see themselves in the Canaanites. And if God did that to the Canaanites, what's our chance? That's their problem with it. And so in, instead of falling in line with God, they do what Felix did in Acts 24 and verse 24 when he sent for Paul concerning the faith in Christ and Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. And Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. They put off the day of judgment in vain. But here's the other part of it. While God's judgment against the Canaanites foreshadows the eternal judgment of everyone, God's judgment against the Canaanites provided the way of escape for everyone. In Acts 13, Paul preaches to the Jews. And he goes through a concise history of their people. And this is what he says in verse 19. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet and afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, a son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And we had removed him. He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. If God does not drive out the Canaanites... His people are completely corrupted. The seed is impure. And His will is not carried out to perfection. Thank God for His justice and His holiness and His graciousness and His mercy. Thank God that He had the consistency, fairness, and holiness of eternal character of love to bring judgment on them. And provide us a way of escape from judgment to come. Brethren, these historical accounts call us to self-reflection, not to doubt. They call us to devotion and faith, not to negligence. When we look at what God did in the Old Testament, we should have fear and then have courage as we're on His side that He will deliver us from such evil. Before we dismiss to our Bible classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.